Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Welcome to episode one. Just some brief housekeeping before I get started. My aim with this podcast is to release weekly, short-form podcasts about sailing. My interests are pretty wide throughout the sport, and I have a lot of ideas for some different things to do uh, within the medium. But for now, by way of introduction, the first batch of episodes will be an audio adaptation of the blog my wife and I kept chronicling the two-year refit of our Pearson Ariel Firefly and subsequent trip down the Intracoastal Waterway from Virginia to the Florida Keys and back. I hope you enjoy. When asked how much it cost to outfit a boat and set off voyaging, the French single-hander Bernard Motissier famously quipped, everything you have. Jerome Fitzgerald, a slightly lesser-known sailor and writer, says that sailboats aren't powered by the wind, they're powered by money. There are innumerable truisms along these lines. Bring out another thousand, a boat dollar, a hole in the water into which one pours money, etc. And it's all a load of crap. Internet cult hero, Captain Freddy, sailed from New England to Florida with sails made out of blue tarps. Matt Layden builds boats smaller than my minivan and regularly crosses the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas. Joshua Slocum rebuilt a retired old fishing boat and sailed around the world. Alone, before people did that sort of thing. The point is, money doesn't move sailboats, or anything for that matter. Desire does. Boots on the ground, pulling the trigger and going for it. You just have to want it bad enough to make choices that consistently move you towards your goal. That's a blog post that I wrote when, when my wife and I were about halfway through refitting Firefly, our Pearson Ariel, and getting her ready to uh, take down the ICW. We uh, purchased the boat in October of 2013 and immediately realized that we had a pretty big project on our hands. So we hauled the boat out and began working on, on a pretty large list of projects. The first thing was a, a deck recore. So the entire foredeck was essentially a giant sponge and had to be the top layer had to be ripped up, the rotten core chiseled out, and everything had to be new, new core laid back in and glass back together. Uh, we did the same on the side decks uh, as well. We scraped all the old bottom paint off. We scraped uh, scraped and sanded the top sides off, so we took the entire hull down to the gel coat, and the gel coat was completely covered in, in alligator cracks or crazing. So there was chunk in some places there was actually chunks of it falling off. So we, we did some fairing, some filling, painted a barrier coat on the entire hull, and uh, put new new top sides paint on two part polyurethane. Did the roll and tip method, which uh, which is pretty stressful when it's going on because you have to kind of get everything just right. You have to get the the paint thinned out just so. But it looks really sharp, and we were pretty happy with the with the result. Probably the the largest the the, the largest biggest most technical aspect of the of the refit was when we initially pulled the boat. We we purchased her, and we hadn't done it. We didn't do a survey. We didn't take a test sail. She was something of a, of a, for project boats. So we got a good price on her, but it was as is. So we pulled the boat out of the water, and we immediately realized that the rudder needs to be rebuilt. 
Uh, the, so the rudder was original to the boat. Uh, so it was built in 1967. The rudder was built out of uh, planks of mahogany drift bolted together and had, had just rotted out. I mean, it's 40 or 50 year old rudder at that point. So we took marine plywood, built, built the new rudder out of marine plywood. Uh, if you picture taking a rudder and cutting it in half down the center line, uh, we routed out holes or routed out the channels for the bolts that attached the rudder to the rudder post and had to build a jig to get to run the router and the saw along. So all the cuts kind of lined up nice and everything fit where it was supposed to go. So it was pretty tricky. I think I ended up building probably eight or nine practice blanks, you know, just in cheap plywood. And then finally got everything fitted where it looked, everything looked good and made the final one out of marine ply and then glassed it all together. We repaired the whole to deck joint. The, um, the, the whole to deck joint on the Pearson aerial is a little goofy and I don't recall the exact details of the construction, but it's, it's not your normal inward or outward flange. It's something, something a little different. At any rate, it, there was some, some pretty good sized gaps showing. So we, we filled the gaps with thickened epoxy and then did a couple layers of glass all along the seam. So we have about three sixteenths of an inch of fiberglass can, that's kind of reinforcing that hold to deck joint. So that worked out pretty well. We ripped out the old inboard engine, which we probably could have put some not insignificant amount of time and energy into, into rebuilding and getting going again. But we were on a time frame. We wanted to get the boat in the water. As it was, we still ended up spending two years on the hard. So we ripped, ripped the inboard out. We ended up using the space for storage. It opened up a lot of space in the boat. The uh, Pearson Aerial was originally designed with an outboard well. So we got an outboard motor stuck in the well, and it's, it worked great. We replaced all the standing rigging. Um, we just did... There's like companies, you know, that you, you send your old rigging away and they measure it up and, and send it back to you. I had thought about going with uh, synthetic rigging, like a Dynex Ducks type type deal, but we would have ended up having to replace some fittings on the mast. Uh, I was interested in it because it allowed, you can you can do all your own splices, which I, I was interested in learning. However, it, it ended up being a little bit more expensive and we just ran out of time. We were trying to go sailing. I didn't want to spend, you know, spend another fall and winter learning how to do splices. I'd rather be on the water. <laughs> um, what else did we do? We replaced all the standing rigging, uh, replaced all the running rigging. We did for halyards, we got stay set. And, and speaking of splices, my wife spliced uh, eyes into the halyards, which was, that was kind of a fun project. And we had started that a little earlier, I believe. Uh, and that ended up working out pretty good. Um, and then for, for all the sheets and everything, we ended up using number 14 crab pot line because <laughs> I get a good deal deal on it from work. Uh, and I did the, I, I, you know, I checked the specs on it. It's so number 14, I, or I think it's 14 sixteenths of an inch. So seven eighths, some, something like that. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty thick stuff. It's, it's nice on your hands. It's easy to haul on. It's, it's braided, but it's, you, you can't splice it. It's braided out of lots of little fibers. And, um, so the, the breaking straight on it is pretty close to the high end, like yacht, yacht rope, um, but it's it's like I mean I paid ten cents a foot for this stuff I got a whole I got a thousand foot roll for a hundred bucks so that was uh you know it 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 doesn't look yachty but it's 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 plenty strong and it's and it's easy to work with you know if if we cut it we just we just do a the old butane back splice as it is and it, and it seems to work just fine we did all new chain plates uh the uh with, what with the deck core being uh rotted 
there's a lot of moisture up against in in the you know in that in the core of the deck up against the chain plate and so they they had a lot of corrosion so we switched all those out put all new chain plates new bolts in um in the process of ripping out the inboard i kind of ripped apart a lot of the cabinetry so we built some new cabinetry and it's a pretty rough finish it was one of the things i didn't quite get around to to finishing before we left on our trip but it uh it serves we ripped out the new head or sorry we ripped out the old head installed a composting toilet which uh which worked out worked out great the the one issue is that the you know the Pearson aerial was actually not designed in, originally with a, an enclosed head uh, compartment, and a previous owner had had one built. So when we installed the Nature's head, which is we went with the Nature's head, it's pretty tall, and so it's it's a little bit of a tight fit in the head compartment. But uh, Brian, my wife and I are fairly small people, so not too much of an issue. But we had. Um, when we went to purchase the nature's head, we we went up to a, a place in Annapolis called Bacon Sales, and we met a guy there who also used to own a Pearson Ariel. So I wrote a blog post called uh, "The Pearson Ariel and the Myth of the Previous Owner" because we had a kind of an interesting exchange with him. Uh, this is this is how that went. Upon checking out, the somewhat irascible older gentleman manning the register asked what kind of boat we had. "It's a Pearson Ariel," I said, "kind of like a smaller version of a Triton." Oh, I know, said the man, with perhaps a faraway glint in his eyes. I used to own one. Great little boat. The guy who had her before me took it all the way to Bermuda. At this, my mind took off. The guy whom we bought our aerial from also said that the previous owner had taken it to Bermuda. I asked the salesman what the hull number was, and as it turns out, he owned an aerial built in 1963, as opposed to 67. So not the same boat, but a similar story about a perhaps apocryphal trip to Bermuda. I wonder if a brave soul took one of these small boats on such a trip and somehow word of his or her exploits entered into the collective unconscious of aerial owners. Something like, old Pegleg McGaffer and the Rollicking sailed to Bermuda. Or maybe it was a useful sales pitch that somehow caught on. Or maybe these aren't sea stories at all. Perhaps numerous sailors have indeed taken the diminutive 26-footer to Bermuda. I'd like to think that this particular little boat has been around the block a time or two, and that these past two years have simply been a pause between the adventures of the past and the adventures yet to come, even if it's just out the creek and down the river. So that's the story of uh, of buying a of buying a head. Pretty exciting stuff. Uh, what else did we get into? So the deck, in addition to the the hull being covered crazed and covered in uh, alligator cracks, the deck was in similar similarly rough shape. Uh, the uh, there was an old non skid. Uh, like molded non-skid that had completely failed so in some places we scraped it up in some places we sanded and fared uh, pretty much just kind of redid the deck painted and then put new non-skid down which was one of the bigger disasters of the entire project (laughs) we uh instead of using the commercial additive non-skid additive i decided to put sand onto the paint as non-skid and when we got ready to do this, we put down, I guess it was either a primer coat or the first top coat, which was just like a single part epoxy on the deck. And then we were going to shake sand over it. And what ended up happening was as we went to go get the sand, we realized that the bag of sand we had was completely soaking wet. So I didn't want to put wet sand on the paint. I just, I thought it, it wouldn't dry properly. So we ran out to the, to the um, hardware store and got the driest bag of sand we could find, which happened to be a real coarse sand. So there's big, big grains of sand in this bag. 
Uh, and we just kind of went with it. So we had to apply it within the drying time of the paint. The recoat period is like two hours, something like that. So we shake it on there. We, when we, we paint a couple coats on and it works just fine. I mean, you're not going to slip on it. The problem is that over time, it's the, the sand has, has come up pretty reliably in, in a couple spots. So there's some spots on the deck that are no longer non-skid. And the other, the other downside of it is if, if you get like your knee or like a, a knuckle on it, it'll take your skin like right down to the bone. So it's not the most practical way to approach putting non-skid on the boat. And I think maybe if we had used like a finer like filter, pool filter sand or something, it would have worked out all right. But I'm not sure it was worth the 20 or $30, you know, saved on the, the commercial additive. We, uh, we filled in the prop shaft. Um, we fixed the outboard well, needed a little bit of, of glass work, um, lots of, and then lots of little kind of, we painted the interior, ripped out, ripped out a bunch of old equipment, uh, kind of simplified everything. The, probably the biggest, the biggest screw up throughout the whole project was after two years, it was, I think August of 2015, we were ready to put the boat back in the water and one kind of little nagging doubt I had was we had, there was all these old through holes and seacocks that were associated with the old head installations. There's two there. There was one on a sink and one for the raw water input for the motor that we ripped out. And they're all, the seacocks were all old, but we closed them and I just figured they would be closed and we just kind of forget about them, which is one of those things. If you do your homework, you know, you never trust an old seacock, but at any rate, I thought we could get away with it. <laughs> so we put the boat in the water, you know, it's really exciting two years of hard work. I jump on the boat and I can hear water trickling down below. And so, you know, I trace it to one of the through holes from the, the, uh, the old head and it's, it was closed, but it was not closed all the way. There's just a little crack. You could barely tell that it was even open, but it was enough for water to come squirting in. And so it's a, it, there's kind of a weird fitting to, to operate the seacock. There's a square wrench, a specialty wrench that fits the seacock specifically. So I grabbed the wrench I'm leaning on it, leaning on it, and I cannot get the thing to budge. I spray it down with WD, with PB Blaster, everything I could think of. We hit it with a blowtorch. Would not budge. So finally I get a cheater bar, big length of pipe, put it on the wrench, start really leaning on it, and the damn wrench snaps off. So <laughs> I'm standing with a broken wrench and a leaking boat. Uh, not not a good day. So we ended up having to pull the boat back out, and we decided to just, just say, screw it, we're going to take all these seacocks out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so we we, we took the, the old seacocks out we ground a bevel and in, in the holes on, on either on both uh, inside and the outside of the hull glassed everything together and uh and and did it up right so big lessons that learned through the refit uh, i think the first one is is kind of obvious but cheap boats are a false economy uh when we purchased the boat we didn't we didn't have the budget for for much more so, and we certainly ended up putting probably 10 times as much as we paid into her. And for that kind of money, we could have easily bought a simple small boat that was ready to go sailing, you know, right, right off. Uh, so, you know, and that's, so we could have been sailing two years earlier, essentially. However, we didn't have the money at the time and we also didn't have to take out a, uh, a loan and go into debt. So there, you know, it was a, it was a trade-off. Um, the big part the big motivation for taking on a, a major refit like this was to, to learn the skills. Uh, and so that was, that was part of the motivation initially as well. So there's a lot of things 
uh, that I just I would I wouldn't know how to do had I not kind of just jumped into the project and got my hands dirty. So, and the other advantage of that, of course, is knowing every inch of the boat. Uh, so you know, I, Ryan Ryan and I personally sanded just about every inch inside and out. So so we know where all where everything is and, and where all the weak spots are. Um, I think if I were to do take on a project again, there's a few things I would avoid. Uh, I certainly wouldn't. Any any sort of structural work, I would I think I would avoid like the plague. So, for instance, the deck recore was a major pain. The um, the hull to deck joint was a bit of a worry. It didn't t- end up taking that much time, but it was a bit of a concern. Uh, I think it turned out pretty well. You know, with older boats, you're probably looking at a repower. So that in and of itself, just take just taking an engine out of a boat can be a major major undertaking. Um, Another thing that was a, a huge time suck was just taking all the old paint off, just sanding the hull down. I think I would consider having the hull sandblasted if I were to do it again. Um, you know, supposedly it, it can be bad for the laminate if it's not done properly, but with an older boat with a thick hull, I think, I mean, it, we could have saved months, if not, you know, probably four or five months of sanding. We could have, we could have scraped off the project, if you will. Um, Another thing I think that I, I took away from the project is to be careful whose advice you take. Um, and, and maybe this is more applies to fitting the boat out, but you know, I was, I always, I grew up reading Lynn and Larry Party's books and they're great. I mean, they're total badasses, but for what we were going to use the boat for, you know, that's, it's some of their advice may, may have been a bit, not applicable for, for instance they don't they don't you know they say oh you don't need a dodger because it it gets in the way of feeling the wind you don't sail the boat as well well there's plenty of times motoring down the icw that it would have been nice to have a dodger um just stuff little things like that but part of that on the other side of that coin is that we we just really didn't have a whole lot of experience at the time so when we were fitting out the boat we had to rely on just the experience of others stuff that's written down in books and and what you found on the internet so Another thing to consider, I did. I just did the math here. The boatyard's about 25 minutes away from where I work, and it's about 25 minutes away from, from where we live as well. So if I was going out there on average about three times a week, it's 50 minutes a day in the car, two and a half hours a week. Um, it's something like 200, 250 hours over the course of the two-year project, uh, which is an enormous amount of time that, I mean, you know, that could have checked off any number of those major structural refit issues you know certainly wouldn't didn't take more than 250 hours to complete so that's a major consideration um at the same time we were paying 100 bucks a month in storage so you know 250 hours 2400 dollars worth of uh worth of savings if you can put the boat in the backyard i think that's the big thing that if i were to take on a major project again put the boat in the backyard if you can swing it um, at the time we just we didn't have the budget to to move the boat but i think I think it'd be worth it if you could if you could make it happen. But the biggest thing um, throughout the uh, the project was that I learned was just mindset, and kind of alluded to that in that that first blog post I read. But at, you know, I was just I was fired up. We were fired up about it. Nothing was going to stop me from from just putting in the putting in the sweat equity and making it happen. Uh, and you have to be a little bit obsessed and crazed, I think, to get. To really make a make a project like this uh, happen, because it's a lot of work, and uh, most of the jobs are pretty unpleasant. But 
certainly was worth it when we were all uh, when we were all done. So here's a little bit as we we're getting ready to launch the second time. With the through holes out, everything glassed up and painted, we are ready to try again. I'm extremely excited. Ryan is extremely excited. I'm confident in the work we've done. We will sink or swim by our own devices. We'll keep our fingers crossed, we'll knock on wood and pour one out for Poseidon. We'll let you know how it goes. Stay tuned next week for, uh, for the launching and uh, subsequent sea trials. See you later. That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.